0: Thank you. the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do they claims on water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there? This is episode 40. I'm your host, Frederick, and this will be a bit of a different episode. It's actually not going to be like anything we have done before. Exciting, isn't it? As you might know, or not, I live in Sweden, and the summer is in full swing here. This, of course, means that it's vacations times, with travel, all of that. To keep the schedule up with the show, I needed to resort to this bank episode. But it will give you a lot of great insights for future and past episode. So from the title, I assume that you know that this will be about Atlantis. But it will not be as usual. No, instead of talking about the text Generally, we will bother to actually read it this time, something I think Hancock, Corsetti and von Deneken have haven't really done so far, at least it doesn't show. So this episode will be a reading of Plato's book Critias. I've mainly used the 1892 release since it's firmly within the public domains by now, translated then by B. Jowett. But since this translation is over a hundred years old, I have taken the liberty to rework some parts of it based on later translations. I'm not an expert in ancient Greek. I don't speak Greek at all. For a matter of fact, it sounds a little bit Greek to me. Anyway... I used several different, more modern translations that I've read in addition to this 1892 release, and I've used them to get as close as I can to represent Plato's ideas in the book, but with a more modern language. In addition, I've read a couple more studies on the book trying to represent what's said in the text with the knowledge that we have today. Well, enough on this right now. If you want to check my work, it is possible, as usual, since you find all the sources, resources, and further reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. If you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Well, enough of these dad jokes, let's get into the episode instead. <laughs> Before dealing with the story, I need to set a mood and a good picture. I'd also recommend listening to episode 39 Among Gods, Aliens, and Poets, before this episode, since it deals with a lot of how the Greek viewed myth literature and their stories, so to say. Krita's Dialogue is the second book in an uncompleted trilogy where the events occur the day after Plato's dialogue, The Republic. In this work, Plato tries to answer two central questions. What is justice? And is a just person more happy in life than an unjust person? To answer this, an imaginary city is constructed with words, and the characters name it uh, Callipolis. But in the first book of the trilogy, Timaeus, the attendant from the previous night, Critas, Socrates, Hermocrates and Timaeus meet up in the courtyard of a house in Athens. Plato does not state whose house this is, but from the word that he uses, it's often assumed to belong to Critias. The book starts with Plato assigning each attendant a turn order for presentation. Timaeus first, Critias second, and Hermocrates third. Plato also summarized the virtues he had attributed to his perfect society, Calipolis, uh, and wishes it would be possible to see this city set in motion. Timaeus say that Critias happened to know about a state that was just like this Calipolis. Critias gave a short version of the Atlantis story and said that he will tell more when it's his turn uh, as a way to repay Socrates for yesterday's speech. We also learned that Critias heard this story when he was 10 years old and it was told by his grandfather during the Apaturia. This is or was a festival with a storytelling competition. Timaeus, after this teaser, proceeds with his talk about the cosmic origin and the creation of man. So, it is at the end of Timaeus' talk, or story today start. A final comment. Within the text, we will encounter a measurement called stadia, or stadion. Translated to metrics, a stadia is about 150 to 200 meters. And without further ado, we will take our places and sit listening to the conversation. Timaeus. And there I've come to a pleasing end of my account, Socrates. It is like a good rest after a long journey. So pleasing to me is liberation from this long speech. I offer my prayer to the God who has just been created from my speech. Though, of course he was created long ago in fact, is that for our sakes, he may keep safe everything that was well said. And if we inadvertently struck a false note, he will impose the appropriate penalty. And the proper sentence when someone is out of tune is to make him harmonious. I pray for the gift of knowledge, the most perfect and effective medicine, so that in the future, And the account we give of the creation of gods may be accurate. And now, having offered my prayer, I will now deliver the argument to Critias, who will speak according to our agreement. Critias And I, Timaeus, accept the trust, and as you first said that you were going to speak of high matters and begged that some forbearance might be shown to you, I too ask the same or greater tolerance for what I am about to say. And although I am very well know that my request may appear to be somewhat ambitious and discourteous, I must make it nevertheless. For will any man of sense deny that you have spoken well? I can only attempt to show that I ought to have more indulgence than you because my theme is more complex. You see, timing is it's easier for someone to appear competent speaking to humans about gods than talking about mortal men. When the audience condition is one of inexperience and blatant ignorance of the topic, it's effortless for someone to address it. And we all know how we're placed when the issue is the gods. But I would like to clarify my meaning, if you allow me. All that is said by any of us that can be uh, imitation and representation. For if we consider the likeness that painters make of bodies, divine and heavenly, and the different degrees of gratification with which the eye of the spectator receives them, we shall see that we are satisfied with the artist who is able in any degree to imitate the earth and its mountains and the rivers and the woods and the universe and the things that move therein and further that knowing nothing precise about such matters we do not examine or analyze the painting all that is required is a sort of dark and deceptive mode of shadowing them forth but when a person endeavors to paint the human form we are quick to find defect and our familiar knowledge makes us uh, severe judges of anyone who does not render every point of similarity and we may observe the same thing happen in discourse we are satisfied with a picture of divine and heavenly things with a tiny, tiny likeness to them. Still, we are more precise in our criticism of mortal and human things. Wherefore, if I cannot express my meaning at the moment of speaking, well, you must excuse me, considering that to form a proved likeness of human things is the reverse of easy. This is what I want to suggest to you, and at the same time to be. Beg from you, Socrates, that I may not have less but even more leniency given to me in what I'm about to say. A favor, if I'm right in asking, I hope that you will be ready to grant, Socrates. Certainly, Critias, we will grant your request, and we'll grant the same by anticipation to Hermocrates, as well as to you, Timaeus. For I have no doubt that when his turn comes to a bit of while hence, he will make the same request which you have made. In order that he may provide himself a fresh beginning and not be compelled to repeat the same things, let him understand that the indulgence is already extended by anticipation to him. And now friend, Critias, I will announce the judgment of the theater. They believe that the last performer was wonderfully successful and that you will need much indulgence before you can take his place. Hermocrates. The warning, Socrates, which you have addressed to him, I must also take to myself. But remember, Critias, the faint heart never yet raised a trophy. Therefore, you must go and attack The argument, like a man, first invoke Apollo and the muses, and let us hear you sound the praises and so forth the virtues of your ancient citizens. Critias Friend Hermocrates, you who are stationed last and have another in front of you, have not lost heart as yet. The gravity of the situation will soon be revealed to you. Meanwhile, I accept your cohortions and encouragements. But beside the gods, goddesses, and the muses whom you have mentioned, I would especially want to invoke memory. For all the essential part of my discourse is dependent on her favor. And if I can recollect and recite enough of what's been said by the priest and brought here by Solon, I doubt not that I shall satisfy the requirements of the theatre. And now, making no more excuses, I will proceed. First, let me begin by observing that 9000 was the sum of years that have elapsed since the war, which have said to be taking place between those who dwelt outside the pillars of Heracles and all who lived within them. I will describe this war. Of the combatants on the one side, the city of Athens, was repeated to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. And the combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis, an island which, as I said, was once larger than Libya and Asia. However, earthquakes have caused it to sink by now, leaving behind unnavigable mud, which obstructs those who sail out there into the ocean. The progress of the history will unfold from various nations of barbarians, non-Greeks, and families of Hellens, Greek families. Which then existed as they successively appeared on the scene. Still, I must describe the Athenians of that day and their enemies who fought with them and the respective powers and governments of the two kingdoms. Let us give precedence to Athens. In the old days, the gods distributed the whole earth among themselves. There was no quarreling. After all, it makes no sense for the gods not to know. What is appropriate for each of them? Since they do have such knowledge, it's illogical to believe that they would dispute claims and try to gain what's correctly belonged to another one of them. They all of them, by just distribution, obtained what they wanted and created communities in these lands. Having done so, began to look after us. His property and creatures, as shepherds tend to their flock, except Only they did not use blows or physical force, as shepherds tend to do, but governed us like the captain from a stern of a vessel, which in an easy way of guiding animals, holding our souls by the rudder of persuasion according to their own pleasure. Thus did they guide all mortal creatures. Now, different gods had their allotment in different places which they set in order. Hephaestus and Athene, who were brother and sister, sprang from the same father, also had a very similar nature and are united in their love of philosophy and art. Both obtain Athens to share, an area naturally adapted for wisdom and courage, they created brave men out of the soil and put into their minds how to construct the political system. Although only the names of these initial Athenians have been preserved, the destruction of their success and long extension of a time have erased their accomplishments. For when they were any survivors, as I already said, they were men who dwelt in the mountains, and they were ignorant of the art of writing, and heard only the names of the chiefs of the land, but very little about their actions. They were content to name their children after their forefathers. Still, they were unaware of their bravery and rituals, save for the odd and obscure tale about this and that. As they and their children lacked the necessities of life for many generations, They directed their attention to the supply of their wants. Of them, they conversed to the neglect of events that happened long, long times in the past. Mythology and the inquiry into antiquity are first introduced into cities when they begin to have leisure. When they see that the necessities of life has already been provided, but not before. And this is the reason why the names of the ancients have been preserved to us and not their actions. The proof I have is that according to Solon, the account of the war those priests gave included not only the most of the names of Caeserop, Arisius, Eryctitus, Erychiton, and the other predecessors of Theseus, but also attributed most of their achievements to each of them by name and did the same for their wives. Another factor pertinent to how the goddess is depicted that, according to Solon, women and men trained for the military at this time. And because of this costume, people started to picture the goddess wearing armor. It served as a reminder that both sexes of social creatures are equally suited by nature to practice the virtue unique to their species. And we will continue the story after these short messages from our sponsors. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here, exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show for as little as two fifty per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness monster asked for. You will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine. The benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. We will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupangentaneous.com support to sign up. Together, we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. The country was inhabited in those days by various classes of citizens. There were artisans, there were husbandmen, there were also a warrior class, initially set apart by divine men. The latter dwelt by themselves and had all things suitable for nurture and education. Neither had anything of their own. They regarded all they had as common property. Nor did they claim to receive of the other citizens anything more than their necessary food. And they practice all the pursuit we described yesterday as those of our imaginary guardians. Concerning the country, the Egyptian priest said that what is not only probable but manifestly true, that the boundaries were in those days fixed by Istium and that in the direction of the continent. They extended as far as the height of Cithaeron and Parnes. The boundary line came down toward the sea with the district of Oropus on the right and the river Asopus on the border on the left. The land was the best in the world and was therefore able to supply a vast army raised from the surrounding people in those days. Even the remnant of Attica, Greece, which now exist, may compete with any region in the world for the variety and excellence of fruits and suitables of pastures to every animal which provides what I'm saying. Still, in those days, the country was as now and yielded far more abundant produce. Why should we believe this image? Why is it accurate to refer to the soil of contemporary Greece as a vestige of that soil? Attica is merely a promontory that sticks out into the sea from the rest of the mainland and is surrounded by a seabed that drops off abruptly to a significant depth close to the shore. Many great deluges have occurred during these 9000 years. For this is the number of years that has elapsed since the time of which I am speaking. And during that time, and through so many changes, there have never been any considerable accumulation of the soil coming down from the mountains as in other places. But the earth has fallen away all around and sunken out of sight. The consequence is that in comparison to what then was, The remaining only is the bones of such a wasted body, as they may be called. As in case of this small island, all the more affluent and softer parts of the soil have fallen away, and the mere skeleton of the land is being left. But, in the primitive state of this country, its mountains were high hills covered with soils, and the plains we now name the stony field, were full of rich earth, and there was abundant wood in the mountains. Of this loss, their traces still remain, for although some of the mountains now only afford sustenance to bees, not so very long ago there were still to be seen roof of timber cut from trees growing there, which were the size sufficient to cover the largest houses, that were many of other high tree, cultivated by man and bearing an abundance of food for cattle. Moreover, the land reaped the benefit provided by Zeus of the annual rainfall, not as now losing the water which flows of the bare earth into the sea, but having an abundant supply in all places, and receiving it into herself and treasuring up in compact clay soil. It let off into the hollows the streams which is absorbed from the heights, providing everywhere abundant fountains and rivers. At the locations of these historical springs, there are still shrines from the past that serves as reminders of the authenticity of this story of the country. And such was the natural state of Greece which was cultivated, as we may well believe, by genuine farmers, real farmers, who made farming their business. They were lovers of honor and noble nature. They had the best soil in the world, an abundance of water, and in heaven above, an excellent, tempered climate. Now, the city in those days were arranged a bit like this. First, the Acropolis was Different compared to now. The fact is that a single night of excessive rain washed away the earth and laid the Acropolis bare. At the same time there were earthquakes. Then an extraordinary inundation occurred. The third before the great destruction of the the Greek ancestors. But in those primitive times, the hill of the Acropolis extended to Arrhenius and Elyssus. It included Pnyx on one side and Lycabetus at the boundary on the opposite side of Pnyx, as well covered with soil and level at the top, except in one or two places. Outside the Acropolis, on the sides of the hill, dwelt the artisans and the farmers, Working the ground nearby, the warrior claws dwelt by themselves around the temple of Athene and Hephaestus at the summit, which they had closed with a single fence like, like the garden of a single house. On the north side, they have public buildings and erected dining halls to use during the winter. They had all the facilities which they needed for their everyday life. The temple were not adorned with gold and silver, for they did not use metals for such a purpose. They only took middle course between meanness and ostentation. They built moderate houses, which they and their descendants could grow old, and bequeath similar homes to others just like themselves. But in the summer times, they left their gardens and gymnasium and dining halls and went to the southern side of the hill to use them for the same purpose. Where the Acropolis now is, there was a single fountain, which was unfortunately choked by the earthquake and has only left a few small streams, which still exist in vicinity. Still, in those days those days, the fountain gave an abundant water supply for all and had a suitable temperature in both summer and in the winter. And this is how they dwelt, being the guardians of their own citizens and the leader of the Greeks who were their willing followers. And they took care to preserve the same number of men and women through all time. Being so many as was required for warlike purposes then and now about, 20,000, give or take. Such were the ancient Athenians. And after this manner, they rightlessly administered their own land and the rest of Greece. They were renowned all over Europe and Asia for the beauty of their persons and for the many virtues of their souls. And of all men who lived in those days, they were the most illustrious. And next if I have not forgotten what I heard as, as mere child, I will impart a character and origin of Athens' enemies. Friends should not keep their stories to themselves, but have them in common. Yet, before proceeding further in the narrative, I ought to warn you that you must not be surprised if you should perhaps hear Greek names given to foreigners and non-Greeks. I will tell you the reason for this. You know, Solon, who intended to use the tale for his poem, inquired into the meaning of the name and found that the early Egyptians, in you know writing them down, had translated them into their own language. And he recovered the meaning of several names and went copying them again, translating them into our language. My great-grandfather Droppedis, had the original writings, which is still in my possession and was carefully studied by me as a child. Therefore, if you hear names as used in this country, you, you must not be surprised, for I have told you how they came to be introduced. The tale which was of great length begins a little bit as this. I have before remarked in speaking of the allotments of the gods, that they distribute the whole earth into portions, differing in extent and made temples and instituted sacrifice for themselves. And Poseidon, receiving the island of Atlantis for his lot, begat children by a mortal woman and settled them in a part of the island which I will now describe to you, looking towards the sea but in the center of the whole island. There was a plain that is said to have been the fairest of all plains and so extremely fertile. Near a plain, still in the center of the island, at a distance about 50 stadia, give or take, there was a mountain not very high on either side. In this mountain there dwelt one of the earth-born, primeval men of that country, whose name was Evanor. He had a wife named Lusip, and they had only one daughter, named Clato. The maiden had already reached womanhood when her father and mother died. Poseidon fell in love with, and of course had intercourse with her, he separated the hill where she lived from the surrounding area to create a defense for his concubine, surrounding it by progressively larger concentric rings made up the intermittently of land and water. He created rings equally spaced from the center, with two rings made of land and three made out of water. Each had its circumference equally distance, uh, every way from the center, so that no man could get to the island. For ships and voyagers were not created. Yet at least. And being a god, Poseidon found no difficulty making special arrangements for the center island, bringing up two springs of water from beneath the earth, one of warm water and the other of cold, making every variety of food spring up abundant from the soil. Poseidon also begat and brought up five pairs of twin male children and divided the island of Atlantis into ten portions. He gave to the firstborn of the eldest pair of twins, the twins' mother's dwelling and the surrounding allotment, which was the largest and of course the best, and made the child the king over the rest of them. He made the others into princes and gave them rule over many men and a large territory, and he named them all the eldest. The first king, he named Atlas. After him, the whole island and the ocean were called Atlant. To his twin brother, who was born just after him, had obtained as his lot the extremity of the island, towards the pillars of Heracles, facing the country which is now called the region of Gates. And in that part of the world, he gave the name which in the Hellenic language is Humilius. In the language of the country which was named after him, Gadrius. Of the second pair of twins, he called one Ampharos and the other Evamon. To the elder of the third pair of twins, he named Mencius and Autochoton, to the one who followed him. On the fourth pair of twins, he called the elder Elasiops and the younger Mestor. And the fifth pair, he gave the name of Asaeus and the younger that of Diapreppes. So, all his sons and their descendants lived there for many, many generations. In addition to ruling over numerous other islands in the ocean, they also, as I said before, governed all the land this side of the pillars of Heracles up to Egypt and Eutoria. Now, Atlas has numerous and honorable family. And they retained the kingdom, the eldest son handing it to his eldest for many, many generations. They had such amount of wealth that's never before been possessed by kings and potanates and is not likely to ever be again. They were furnished with everything they need, both in the city and in the country. Because of the greatness of the empire, many things were ...brought to them from foreign countries. And the island itself provided most of what was required by them for use in their everyday life. In the first place they dug out the earth, whatever was to be found there. Solid as well as futile. And that which is now only a name was then something more than a name. Orkikallum was dug out of the earth in many parts of the island being more precious in those days than anything except maybe for gold. There was an abundant wood for carpenter's work and sufficient maintenance for tame and wild animals. Moreover, there were a significant number of animals elephants on the island, for there was provision for all other sorts of animals, both for those which live in lakes and marshes and rivers, also for those who live in the mountains and on the plains. There was for the animals which is the largest and most voracrious of all. Thirdly, whatever fragrant things there's now in the earth, whether roots or herbage or woods or essence, which distill from fruit or a flower, grew and thrived within the land of Atlantis. Also the fruit which admits of cultivation, both the dry sort, which is given us for nourishment, and any other which we use for food. We call them by their common name of poles. And the fruit having a hard rind, affording drinks and meat and ointments, and good store of chestnuts and the like, which furnish pleasure and amusement, and are fruits which spoil with keeping, and the pleasant kinds for dessert, with which we console ourselves after dinner when we are tired of eating. All these that the sacred island which then beheld the light of the sun brought forth fair and wondrous, and in infinite abundance with such blessings the earth freely furnished them meanwhile they went on constructing their temples and palaces and harbors and docks and they arranged the whole country in the following manner first of all they bridged over the zones of sea which surrounded the ancient metropolis making a road to and from the royal palace and at the very beginning, they built a court in the habitation of the god and their ancestors, which they continued to ornament in successive generations. Every king surprised the one who went before him to the uttermost of his power until they made the building a marvel to behold in both its size and its beauty. And beginning from the sea they bored a canal of 300 feet in width and 100 feet in depth and 50 stadia in length, which they carried through to the uttermost zone, making a passage from the sea up to this, which became a harbor, and leaving an opening sufficient to enable the largest vessel to sail. Moreover, They divided the bridges, the zones of lands which parted the zones of the sea, leaving room for a single tramway to pass out of the zone into another, and they covered the channel to leave a way underneath for the ships, for the banks were raised considerably above the water. The next ring of land was the same size as the greatest ring of water, where the sea had been channeled. The land ring of the second pair was the same size of the water ring from the first. And the ring of water was two states wide. The island, where the palace was, had a diameter of 50 stages. In contrast, the ring of water immediately around it was just, just a single stadia wide. All this, including the zones and the bridge, which was the sixth part of a stadium in width was surrounded by a stone wall on every side, placing towers and gates on the bridges where the sea passed in. The stone used in the work was quarried from underneath the center of the island and from underneath the zones on the outer and inner sides. One kind of stone was white, another kind of stone was black, and a third was red. And they quarried. They simultaneously hollowed out double docks, having roof formed from the native rock. Some of the buildings were very simple. But in others, they put together different stones, varying the color to please the eye and to be a natural source of the light. The entirety of wall going around the outer ring was covered with a paste made out of brass or maybe bronze the next wall was coated with tin and the third encompassing the acropolis was covered with orchaleum and gleamed like fire in the sun and we will learn more about how atlantis palaces inside the citadel were constructed after this very brief ad break palaces in the citadel's interior were constructed like this. Now, in the center was a sacrosanct temple dedicated to Clato and Poseidon, surrounded by a low wall entirely out of gold. And this was the spot the family of the ten princes first saw, the light. Thyser the people annually brought the fruits of the earth in their season from all ten portions. To be an offering to each of the ten. Here was Poseidon's own temple. A stadia in length. Half a stadium in width. And of a proportionate height. With a strange non-Greek appearance. All the outside of the temple. Except for the pinnacles they covered with silver. And the pinnacles was covered with gold. In the temple's interior. The roof was out of ivory. Curiously wrought everywhere with gold, silver and Orichalcum. All the other parts, the walls, pillars, and floors, were coated with orichalcum. In the temple, statues of gold were placed. One depicted Poseidon, standing in a chariot drawn by six winged horses, and of a such a size that he touched the roof of the building with his head. Around him were hundred nereids riding on dolphins, for such was thought to be the number of them by the men of those days. There were also in the interior of the temple other images which had been dedicated by private persons. And around the temple on the outside were statues of gold of all the descendants of the ten kings and their wives. There were many other great offerings of kings and private persons, coming both from the city itself and and even from foreign cities over which they hold sway. There was an altar, too, which in size and workmanship corresponded to this magnificence, and the palaces in like manner answered to the kingdom's greatness and the temple's glory. And in the next place they had fountains, one, again, of the cold, and another of hot water, in gracious plenty flowing. And they were wonderfully suited in respect of both their taste and the water's quality. They constructed buildings around them and planted suitable trees. Also, they made cisterns, some open to the heavens, others were roofed over to be used in winter as warm bath. There were the king's bath and there was the bath of private person, which were of course kept apart. There were also separate baths for women, horses and cattle, and each was appropriately organized. Of the water which ran off, they carried some to the groove of Poseidon, where we are growing all manners of trees of incredible, incredible height and beauty, owing the excellence of the soil. At the same time, the remainder was conveyed by aqueducts along the bridges to the outer circles. Now, many temples were built and dedicated to many girls in these outer rings, but also gardens and places of exercise, some for men and others for horses in both of the two islands. In the center of the largest island, there was constructed a hippodrome. In width and length allowed to extend all around the island for horses to race in. Also, there were guard houses as intervals, for these gods, there were the most trusted of whom who were appointed to keep watch in the lesser zone, which was nearer the Acropolis. While the most trusted had houses given to them within the citadel near the persons of the kings. The docks were full of trimmers and naval stores and everything. Everything was ready for use. Now, enough of the plan of the royal palace. Leaving the palace and passing out across the three harbors, you come to a wall that begat at sea and went all around. This was everywhere distant 50 stadia from the largest stone or dock enclosed the whole, the ends meeting at the mouth of the channel, which led to the sea. The entire area was densely crowded with habitations. The canals and the largest of the harbors were full, full of vessels and merchants coming from far apart, who, from the numbers, kept up a multitudinous sound of human voices and din and clatter and all sorts of noises, but both night and day. I have described the city and the environs of the ancient palace nearly in the words of Solon. And I must trust, Endeavour, to represent to you the nature and arrangement of the rest of the land. The whole country was said by him to be, Solon, that is to say, to be very lofty and precipitous on the side of the sea. Still, the country immediately above the surrounding city was level plain, surrounded by mountains that descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even, in and of an oblong shape, extending in one direction 3,000 stadia. Still, across the center island, it was 2,000 stadia. This part of the island looked towards the south and was sheltered from the north the surrounding mountains were celebrated for the number and size and beauty far beyond which still exist having them also so many wealth of villages of country folk and rivers and lakes and meadows supplying food enough for every single animal wild or tame and much woods of various sorts abundant for each and every kind of work you can imagine I have described the city and the environments of the ancient palace nearby in the world of Solomon, and I will now describe the plain as it was fashioned by nature and by the labors of many, many generations of kings throughout the ages. The entire area was extremely high, with sheer cliff along the shoreline. There was nothing but a plain close to the city encircled by mountains descending to the sea. The plain, which stretched 3,000 stadias in one direction and 2,000 stadias inland from the sea, was uniformly flat and essentially oblong-shaped. The island's entire area facing south was protected from the northern winds. The mountains surrounding the plains were famous in those days for their vast numbers, size, and beauty. It's said that no mountain today could compete with these. In the mountains, there were numerous prosperous villages with a large rural population and rivers, lakes, meadows that provided food for all species of animals, both domestic animals and wild animals. There was an abundance of timber of different types, more than enough for any task or occasion. I will now go on and describe the plain as it was fashioned by nature and the engineering and planning of those many generations of kings throughout long, long ages. As I mentioned, the plateau was mainly rectangular and oblong and were falling out of the straight line followed by the circular Ditch and this ditch depth, width, and lanes were incredible and gave the impression it would never have been able to be created by man. Nevertheless, I must say that I was told it was excavated to a depth of 100 feet, and its breadth was a stadium everywhere, and it was carried around the whole of the plane and was. 10,000 stadia long, it received the streams that come down from the mountains and winded around the plateau and then circulated the city, washing any discharge from it into the sea. Now, further inland, straight canals of 100 feet in width were cut from it through the plain and again that up in the ditch which lead into the sea. Now, these canals were at intervals of a 100 stadia. By then, they had brought the wood from the mountain to the city, and they conveyed the fruit of the earth in ships, cutting traverse passage from one canal into another and to the town. And twice a year, they were able to harvest the crops. In the winter, they benefited from the rain provided by Zeus, and in the summer, the water which the land supplied by introducing streams from the canals. It had been decided that each plot, and there were 60,000 in total, each 10 by 10 stages in area, was to supply one officer for the number of men living in the plain who were available for military service. Now, naturally, there was a large number of men from the mountains and the rest of the country, and they were assigned to these plots and their commanders, district by district, Village by village, the leader was required to furnish for those war the sixth portion of a war chariot, making a total of ten thousand chariots. Also, two horses and riders for them: a pair of chariot horses without a seat, accompanied by a horseman who could fight on foot, carrying a small shield and having a charioteer who stood behind the man at arms to guide the two horses. Also. He was bound to furnish two hoplites, two archers, two slingers, three stone shooters, three javelin men who were light armed. And of course, four sailors to make up the complement of the 1200 ships. Such was the military order of the royal city. The order of the other nine governments varied, and it would be wear to recount all of these several differences, so I will skip it for now at least. As to how the power was wielded, the following was the arrangement from the first. Each of the ten kings had his own section and city. He had absolute control of the citizen and, in most cases, of the law, punishing, slaying, whoever he would like to. But among the kings themselves, they were ruled by the laws and command by Poseidon, as passed down to them by tradition. The first kings inscribed the rules on a pillar of Orihaklum, which was situated in the middle of the island at the temple of Poseidon. The kings were gathered together there every fifth and sixth year, alternatively, thus giving equal honor to the odd and to the even number. And when they were gathered together, they only discussed matter of general interest. They also tried to test each other to see if any of the kings had transgressed against these central rules and commands by Poseidon. And if that had happened, they would try the offender in court. And this was performed as follow. At the temple dedicated to Poseidon were ten consecrated bulls kept. When the ten kings were alone at the temple, they would pray to Poseidon, asking permission to capture one sacrificial bull that would please the god. Armed with sticks and ropes, since metal weapons were not allowed here, they went and tried to caught one. And when they took it, they brought it to the temple and to the stelae, where they cut the throat above the stelae and let the blood wash over the inscriptions. It was not only the laws written on the pillars, but also a vow that would call down a horrible curse on anyone who broke the laws that was inscribed there. After slaying the bull according to costumes, they burnt its limbs and filled a bowl of wine and cast in a clot of blood for each of one of them. The rest of the bull was put in the fire after purifying the column and everything around it. Then they drew from the bowl in golden cups and poured a libation of blood and wine on the fire. They swore that they would judge according to the pillar's law and punish those who had transgressed them at any point. For the future, they would not, if they could help, offend against the writing on the pillar, would neither command others nor obey any rulers who commanded them to act otherwise than according to the laws of their father, Poseidon. This was the prayer that each of them offered up for himself and his descendants while drinking and dedicated the cup out of which he drank to the god Poseidon. After they had supped and satisfied their needs, When darkness came and on the fire above the sacrifice was cold, they all put on the most beautiful, beautiful azure robes. Then, while sitting on the ground at night, by the embers of the sacrifice by which they had sworn, after turning out the light in the whole temple, the kings received and gave judgments. If any of them had... Accusation to bring against any one of them. When they had given judgment at daybreak, they wrote down their sentences on a golden tablet. They dedicated it together with their robes to be a memorial. Many special laws affected the kings, all inscribed in the temple and on the stele. The most important was the following. They were not to take up arms against one another, and were all to come to the rescue if anyone in their cities attempted to overthrow the royal house. As their ancestors, they were to deliberate in common about war and other matters, given supremacy to the descendant of Atlas. And the king could not sentence his relatives to death unless most of the ten kings agreed with the verdict. So much for elaborating on the great power that was once resided in Atlantis. According to the story, the gods assembled this force and sent it against certain regions for reasons lifted below. For many generations, as long as Poseidon's spirit was strong in them, they followed the laws and got along well with the gods, who were their relatives. The people stuck to principles they perceived as true and perfectly wise. Due to their practical manner and in which they reacted to changes in life, they looked down on everything except virtue. The people of Atlantis saw their prosperity as trivial and could easily bore the burden, as one might say, of the amount of gold and other possession. Even if they had large amount of wealth and luxury, they were not overcome with greed and drunkenness. They saw that while prosperity and wealth are good, good, it's better with friendship and virtue, that wealth might disappear and friendship wither from materialistic goals and ambitions. With all of this noble reasoning and divine spirit they had within them, they could thrive in all the ways I brought up. But the holy spirit within the people of Atlantis started to shrivel and fade due to the constant delusion of the divine with mortality. The mortal side started to become the dominant part of their soul, making them incapable of bearing the heavy load of their prosperity. Corruption grew among them. Anyone with sight could see the wildness of their action as they started to destroy the grandest of their valuables. However, those blind to the true way to happiness would see this as the Atlanteans finally, finally having the most desirable and enviable life. When the noble reasoning was gone, the Atlanteans got infected by greed and a thirst for power. Zeus, the ruler of the gods, who governed by law, was bestowed with the eyes to see these type of things. He could see the rot taking hold of the divine bloodline and wanted to punish them, bring by punishment more harmony into the life of the people. Zeus summoned all the gods for a meeting in one of the most beautiful, beautiful, wonderful halls in his home. This place is located in the center of the universe and has a view of the whole creation. And when the gods had taken their seats, Zeus said, Well what Zeus said, we actually don't really know. Plato never finished his story, or the third book for that matter in the series, which would have been the speech from Hermocrates. But I'm sure that end would be the Atlantean's win over Atlantis due to the virtues and the intelligence over strength, but the gods ultimately punish everyone with one of the deluges that of course took place to make well, <laughs> pretty a story work, but this story will serve us in the next episode when we will deal with Jimmy Corsetti's claims about the location of Atlantis. See, there was a grander plan with all of this all along, but till then, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or even better, to your friend in the trench. I would also recommend visiting diggingupancientaliens.com to find More info about me and the podcast. You can also find me on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you're hankering to write an email in all caps, you find my contact info on the website. There you also find all the sources and resources to use to create this podcast. You also find further read suggestions if you want to learn more about the subject. Don't forget that we have a membership thing going on on the website. And you can find that at diggingupancientalians.com support. And if you want a truckload of bonus content and early releases, you can instead head over to artrologypodcastnetwork.com and become a member. Not only do you get an ad-free version and bonus stuff, but you also get the, all the programs, uh, the network's programming's bonus stuff. Now, Sandra Mertelor created the intro music and the outro, As usual, is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as two fifty per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com/support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com/support to read more information and sign up right there.